And uh, that incident, a meeting between our Lord and the young man, as it's summed up in verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now the Bible tells us that on one occasion when Christ preached, many of the people complained that what he said was hard or difficult. This is a hard saying, they said, and who can hear it? And as I've mentioned to you before, Christ's sayings can be hard in two different ways. They can, first of all, be difficult to understand, and we know that very well. There are plenty of things which the Lord spoke, either himself directly or through the apostles, which are difficult to understand. Even Peter himself said in his letter that Paul had written things which were difficult to understand. But some of the sayings that Christ uttered are hard in the sense that they're difficult to accept. And uh, they're all too easy to understand, but very difficult to accept. And they're difficult to accept because they're so cutting, they're so stark. And we find that they, they really search us out and we feel, after hearing them, like the apostles did when they said, who then can be saved? And the tendency with a saying that's hard in that sense, a saying that's difficult to accept, the tendency is to try somehow to tone it down or to explain it away. And that's the case with this particular text where the Lord says that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Some people have explained that as though the reference to the eye of the needle is a reference to some kind of narrow passageway that people could walk through but only a camel could go through it with difficulty or some have suggested that it was possibly the name of a gate that um, a camel had great difficulty getting through and getting access into the city of Jerusalem. Now the problem with that theory is, I mean you can look at it yourself but there's no evidence to support such a claim at all. In fact, this is more than likely a fairly common saying that the Lord just took and used. People might have used, uh, it's harder for a camel to go through of the eye of a needle than for this or for that. In other words, it can't happen. And the Lord chose that particular saying in connection with the rich entering the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You'll notice, by the way, that he doesn't say the eye of the needle, like a gate or a well-known passageway, it is simply the eye of a needle. Now, of course, the idea of a camel going through the eye of a needle is quite absurd. And it is, of course, impossible. But you'll notice that impossibility is what Christ is trying to convey, not difficulty. First of all, he says that it is difficult. But then he says, with men, he says it is actually impossible this thing, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but with God, he says, it is actually possible, but only the grace of God can achieve it. Now, 
I'll return to this a little bit later on, but it's quite striking here to notice how the Bible emphasizes how difficult it is for the rich to repent. Now, there are all kinds of sins that we're required to repent of. And some of us may be deep in certain kinds of sins. Who knows what they are? Maybe only you and God, of course, knows what yours are. But in the scriptures, there's a special difficulty attached to repenting from being rich. It's as though the heart becomes so wedded to material things and to possessions, whether in the form of coin or what you can convert the coin to, that it's difficult, impossible to wean the heart away from that. It requires a special work of grace to take a materialistic man, woman or child into the kingdom of God. Now that in itself is worthy of a lot of thought and meditation because you may have your own idea as to what particular sins are difficult to take people out of. But the scriptures tell us that materialism or worshipping the God of mammon, bowing down at that altar or shrine, is what requires a special work of God's grace come back to that a little bit. Of course, as I mentioned in connection with uh, another passage fairly recently, the difficulty is always deciding, well, who is rich? I suppose if I was going to ask all of you tonight, are you rich? You would probably all deny it, even though your income would widely differ. Most people think they're not rich just because somebody is richer than themselves. And how do you know who's rich and who's poor. I mean, the only way you can know two extremes is by knowing where the middle is. If the middle shifts, then the extremes are not in the same place anymore. So, who really is poor? Is there anybody poor in global terms amongst ourselves? I would say absolutely not. I would say in global terms that all of us are fantastically rich. There are many people in here who can remember what I remember. Not that old, but I well remember not having running water in our house, uh, having no washroom, having no electricity, various things like that. You would consider a person like that very poor, but when I was young in that situation, I was still rich in connection with the vast majority of the world. So if we're to think in global terms, that's one thing. Another thing, too, is we, that we consider what the Apostle Paul says about what we should be content with. He says that having food and clothing, let us be content with that. Because there are many poor who struggle for food and they struggle for clothing. So if that's a kind of biblical meaning, and if we take a, a global perspective, you're rich, I'm rich. In other words, this text catches most of us, if not all of us, in its net. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because it's really easy to come to a passage like this and say, well, that's not me. In fact, you could look around yourself and say, this is for her or for him. But really, can you honestly say that you're so devoid of possessions and riches that you don't come into this category in a global perspective or in a biblical perspective? I suggest that you pay attention to it on your own behalf and not on anyone else's behalf. The text catches us all. But of course, as Christ says in many places, the real problem is not so much what we have, it's the way that we relate to it. 
And again, that tends to get us off the hook because we say, okay, well, maybe I have a lot, but I'm not all that wedded to it. Well, are you? Or am I? Who knows? This man was tested on that particular point, after all, what his relationship with his wealth actually was. And I'm sure when the Lord tested it, he had a very different view of his relationship to his wealth than he had before the Lord tested it. But I don't know what your relationship to your wealth is. Only you know, and of course, the God who made you. But certainly the Bible says that if your riches do increase, don't set your heart upon them. It also says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the thing that you assume to be your greatest treasure will reveal where your heart actually is. Now, it's best to move away from the abstract and just to go to the concrete. After all, all this arises out of a meeting between Christ and a young man, who is, of course, very, very wealthy. He's got a lot of money, and he's got a lot of possessions, which are, of course, the things, normally, that money buys. He's known to all of us as the rich young ruler because these three things are essentially the only three things that we really know about him. It's a strange thing, you know, because we all feel, if we know the Bible reasonably well and if we've heard plenty of sermons, we feel we all know the rich young ruler, and yet we don't really know all that much about him. But, of course, we know what God wants us to know about him. Matthew tells us that he's young, which means normally that all his life lies out before him. Although, as I said in the morning, just because you're young, that's not necessarily the case. Always remember that the young die as well as the old. But ordinarily, he's a young man, therefore his life stretches out before him. And when you're young, that can seem very long. Matthew and Luke both tell us that he is rich. Matthew tells us that he had great possessions. Luke tells us also that he was in government. He was a ruler a ruler in government. Now, when you think about it, these are the three things that people want in life when you, again, abstract them. He's got youth, he's got wealth, and he's got power. It's amazing what people do for these three things. Wealth. Well, everybody wants wealth, normally, because, as the Bible says, money answers everything. Or at least, people think money answers everything. That's why sometimes monies are called securities, because they give you some kind of security. Some kind. Everybody wants youth. Old people wish they were young. I suppose they wish they could still retain the experience of old age, but still they would like to be young. People pay to be young. They pay to keep looking young. They pay fortunes to rediscover the looks of their youth, trying to restore it when it's gone. Power? Well, who doesn't want that? You see people scrambling for power all the time. Local power, family power, community power, political power, economic power, because, well, power buys you influence, buys you lots of things. Power even buys you company. It gets you company. A certain kind of company, anyway. It doesn't get you real friendship. You'll discover that sometimes 
when you're wealthy and when you're powerful, you have lots of friends that mysteriously disappear as soon as you lose your power. The same thing can happen with your wealth, by the way. And I suppose you could say that, well, if you've got youth and wealth and power, what more do you need? I mean, if that's what everybody wants, if this is a kind of trinity that everybody worships, wealth, youth, and power, well, what more can you want? Except, of course, health. Um, (coughs) If you lost your health, you'd suddenly value that more than the other three. But take it that you have health. What you really want is youth, wealth, and power. Now, there's a man with all these three who's been listening to Christ, and he suddenly runs forward out of the crowd. It's interesting that he runs. Uh, It's also interesting that he kneels down before the Lord, which I'll come to later, but he's obviously enthusiastic, and he's, he's not ashamed to ask the question that he wants to ask. The question he asks is a famous one in verse 16. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now the question itself and the way he asks it tells us a lot about the person. It tells us first that he believes in God. That of course is a great thing. It is important to do so. I don't know if there's anyone in here tonight who doesn't believe in the reality of God. I've mentioned more than once that the greatest single lie ever told in the cosmos is that God doesn't exist. And it's the greatest lie ever believed that God doesn't exist. So much so that the Bible calls an unbeliever a fool. As though you've missed the most obvious truth about you and the universe. That is that you are made both you and the universe. So of course it's important to believe in God. It's a good start. But let me say this. There's no prizes for that. And God doesn't give out any prizes to those who believe in his own existence. Especially when you're a fool if you don't. James tells us after all in the New Testament that the devils believe in God and that they tremble. They have the wisdom, if you Well, not the wisdom, they have the sense to tremble least. But they believe in God. There's no prizes for them. So why should there be a prize for you or for me in merely believing in God? But at least he does. Obviously it's not enough to get him into the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice that he also believes that there is a life to come. He wants to know about eternal life which means that he believes in heaven and the Lord speaks to him about heaven. He says to him, if he sells what he has and gives it to the poor, he'll have treasure in heaven, and he can come and follow the Lord. Now, these things concerning the kingdom of heaven and its glory were probably the things that the Lord Jesus Christ was preaching about. I mean, if you look carefully at the context in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three evangelists who record this incident Around this incident you find Christ preaching about the kingdom of heaven and what is necessary to enter it and what the blessings are like in the kingdom of heaven. What you do to enter it and how you enter it. And these are the things that make the young man come forward. So he believes 
in heaven and he believes in eternal life. Of course, there's no prizes for that either. That is something, again, that we should simply understand and believe. Even the devils, too, believe in that. But he also believes that he doesn't have this life. After all, he asks the question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, this is probably a new question for him, because my guess is that as a Jew, which he is obviously, because he considers himself to have kept the Ten Commandments from his youth, my guess is that he has always thought himself to be right with God, because that's the kind of upbringing that he would have had. The Pharisees were the dominant a religious party in the land also, well not at this time the dominant political party but they were certainly the dominant religious party and they would always tell people that providing they were children of Abraham they didn't have to earn their salvation but they could lose it in other words you, you were okay unless you did something disastrously wrong which would mean you would be lost but otherwise you're saved just by virtue of who you are that you've been so favoured by God as to be born into this world as a child of Abraham and a part of the church, born and raised in the church of God, and therefore you are saved. But this person has come to realize that he's not. Now that's probably due to the preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ was preaching. Probably due too to the preaching that the Baptist was preaching, John the Baptist, prior to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's preaching would have begun to expose to these people that it's not enough to be born in the right place or in the right house or to the right parents. That something fundamental has to happen to yourself. That was one of the big emphases in our Lord's preaching right from the beginning. You'll remember how he encountered Nicodemus and told him that unless he himself personally was born again, then his privileges and his status meant nothing. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this young man has come to believe that something is actually lacking and that he does not have eternal life, that he doesn't really know God. Even though he's trying to serve God and trying to please God, he doesn't actually know God. Now, that's a good thing. I mean, the other things were good things too, but this is a major advance. It's a major advance to know you're sick when you're sick. And we're spiritually sick. And we need to know we're spiritually sick. And this man does. Believes in God, believes in eternal life, but he believes that he doesn't have this eternal life. He also needs that he believes that he needs to do something to put that right. <coughs> he's got to do something that's explicit in the question good teacher what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life it's as though he says well something is still eluding me he says I'm not there I know I need to be there what, what is it that I need to do and probably he thinks like, like you would or I would that there's just some special thing, a particular act, maybe an act of courage or 
an act of sacrifice that would do it. For example, just prior to this, the Lord had spoken of those who had made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's, that's a reference to people who have chosen uh, to remain single or to remain celibate because they recognized that that was God's call upon their lives. And though they were technically free to take a wife or to take a husband, whichever it was, although they were technically free to do that, they chose a celibate single life. They denied themselves that possibility because of what they felt God was calling themselves to. So what the young man says is something analogous to that. He says, is there something that I must do, something that I must sacrifice perhaps, that I may enter the kingdom of heaven? Now I wonder if any of that or all of that describes yourself tonight. (laughs) Any of it or all of it. You believe in God, you believe in eternal life, you don't have it and you know there's something that you should do to get it but you're not quite sure exactly what it is. Well, it's quite something then to think of somebody who has wealth, youth and power but he knows something's missing in his life and he knows that something's wrong in his life too. Now I want you to consider both these and I want you to consider both these together. Something's missing in his life and something's wrong in his life. It's vital that you recognise both. I mean, there's lots of people who say, I mean, if I said to you, do you think there's something missing in your life? And you'll say to me, yes, you know this, uh, you know, I've I've got everything, in a way I've got everything. But there actually is something missing in my life and I can't put my finger on it. Well, let me tell you just by the way, and it doesn't deserve a by the way, but what's missing in your life is the presence of God. That's, That's what's missing. But if I were to say to you, yes, but is there something radically wrong in your life? You would probably say, oh, no, I I don't think so. There's something missing, but there's nothing wrong. But you've got to move from the one to the other. This rich young man recognized that it's not just the case that he was lacking something in his life, but the thing that he was lacking had to do with his relationship to God. It has to do with the fact that his life was all wrong. His life needed to be put right. Now there are times when you can look at your life and say it's okay. But when you see the light of God shining through the word of truth, perhaps even when you see it shining powerfully in the life of another Christian that you know, you know that there's something wrong in your life as well as missing. You've got to move from the missing to the wrong. And the reason something's missing is because something is wrong. I realized something was missing in my own life before I realized something was wrong in it. But praise God that I realized something was wrong in it. I'm sure many of you can maybe follow that. With some of you, perhaps you realized something was wrong before you realized something was missing. But you've got to move from seeing something missing to seeing something wrong. In other words, sin is the problem. What's really wrong is that you're alienated from God. The life of God is not in you as it was supposed to be in you. You are in fact dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually, you're dead. And you're supposed to be spiritually alive. You're supposed to have communion with God. There's supposed to be a relationship there. A life streaming from Him 
in you that bubbles up into eternal life. That's supposed to be there. And everything's wrong, and therefore something is missing. This doesn't man, this young man doesn't really know exactly what's wrong. But he does feel that Christ has the answer. And I hope you've realised that too. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons you're in church. Let's say you're unconverted tonight, but you're in church. I would guess that unless someone has more or less compelled you to come in, or you've just come in out of sheer habit, I would guess that you've come possibly to the place where you think that the answer to life, to life, lies somehow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're absolutely right in that, because it absolutely does. And at least this man is asking the right person the right questions in order to get the right answers. And you've got to ask the right questions. And you've got to ask them of the right person. Who is it that can answer these questions about life and death and meaning and purpose and all these? Who can answer these things? Who are you going to go to? I mean, honestly, just now, you know, you want the answer to these things, right? You want to know the answer to life and all its mysteries and perplexities. Who are you going to go to? Is there anybody in the world, either now or in the past, that you think genuinely has the answer to that question? Would it surprise you if I told you that the one person who really did is this man here? And that this young man recognised that? Maybe he was tired of the rabbis with their speculations. You get tired of philosophers too. You get tired of theories, political theories, philosophical theories, psychological theories, cosmological theories. You get fed up of them all because they don't reach you. But the word of God reaches you. And even if you're not a Christian, you'll be conscious tonight of times when the word of God has reached you. How is it that this man just keeps getting in here? How is it that the word of God just keeps entering the head and entering the heart and dealing with you in a way that nobody else and nothing else does or can? Well, it's because, of course, he is the Lord of glory. That's why his words carry such authority and power. They still do. Spoken 2,000 years ago, but you read them and they're as fresh as when they were spoken then. They're beyond the veil. The people who heard him, the common people, said that he didn't sound like the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke with authority. What gives a person authority? Knowledge. Genuine knowledge gives a person authority. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke like a person who knew what was beyond the veil. Not because he was trying to peer into it from below, but because he lived there and came down here to tell us all about it. The reason he sounds plausible and convincing in all the issues that are to do with life and death is because he knows them. And you know he knows them. Even if sometimes you don't want to believe that he does. The reason he sounds like he's speaking the truth is because he is speaking the truth. Now how does Christ respond to him? Well, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that Christ doesn't just respond to the question. He also respects the way that the question is asked. 
After all, the man speaks respectfully. He calls him good master. Mark tells us that he actually knelt before him. Again, as a gesture of respect. Mark tells us, as I think Matthew does too, no, but Mark tells us that he came running to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark tells us that, which conveys urgency. Respect, urgency, which conveys sincerity of heart, honesty, and the Lord respects that. And let me urge that on you too. Psalm 18 tells us that with the pure, God shows themselves pure. With the crooked, God shows himself shrewd. Not crooked, shrewd nonetheless. That's why when the Pharisees asked a whole lot of questions, Christ sometimes batted the way, sometimes Christ answered another one, or asked another one himself, but he only answers questions respectfully asked. And the way you're going to find God is not by shaking your fist and defying him to reveal himself to you. It's by falling down low and saying, open your Bible, open it on your knees and say, Lord, please speak to me through the word. Show me myself. Show me yourself. Show me my need of salvation. Show me yourself as my saviour. And lo and behold, You'll be surprised that when you show yourself pure like that to God, he will come to you in purity and he will answer your question too. No time wasters. So don't waste God's time. The urgency is worth pointing out to. You know, if you say to me tonight, I don't know, but let's suppose you say to me tonight that you're seeking God. Well, tell me how long have you been seeking him? Maybe you need to be less cool about seeking God. Maybe you need to be a little more urgent about seeking God. If, if this man can run enthusiastically and ask his question, then what is it you could do? I mean, is it enough to say week by week, well, I'm seeking the Lord and I'm seeking the Lord? How? How? And how is it you haven't found him? Is it because you're maybe just not urgent enough? You're just not prioritizing it enough? I mean, I suppose this man could have gone home and said, well, I'll ask this question next week or next time he visits where he happens to be here. No, there's some urgency in the matter. You, you can't be cool about seeking God. The kingdom of heaven is now and today. It's never tomorrow or another time. But what does Christ actually say? Well, first of all, you'll notice that he checks the young man on his use of the word good, which the young man uses twice in his question. Good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus comes in unexpectedly and says, why are you calling me good? How are you using that word? How do you mean it? What is good? You're calling me a good master. In what way am I a good master? You ask what good thing shall you do to inherit the kingdom of God? What do you mean by good? What kind of thing do you think would constitute good in my sight or in the sight of God? 
Why indeed do you call me good? Now it's easy to read that response and to conclude that Christ is somehow denying that he's good himself. And I admit that's the, that's the obvious, um, or superficially anyway, it's the obvious meaning of the words. Why do you call me good? There is none good but one that is God. In other words, don't call me good. But Christ is not saying don't call me good. He's saying, why do you call me good? Christ has no hesitation elsewhere in referring to himself as good. In fact, he calls himself preeminently good. When he introduced himself as the shepherd of Psalm 23, who is in charge of God's flock, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, the good shepherd is one of the terms used for God who was the shepherd of his people. Well, Christ has no difficulty in taking the title to himself, I am the good shepherd of Israel. And the good shepherd of God's flock lays down his life for his sheep. So Christ doesn't have any difficulty calling himself good. What he's doing is he's turning the whole thing round and saying, do you know who you're calling good when you call him good? Do you realize the goodness that I possess? Do you understand that I am not just good, but that, that I am the source of goodness? There is only one source of goodness, which is God. And do you understand that that source of goodness lies in me? In other words, it's a way of saying, do you know who you're speaking to? If you think by addressing me as good master, that you're giving me the same kind of status as you would give to another teacher or to another rabbi, well, you're much mistaken. But the Lord leaves that. There's no doubt the man would go home and think about it later. But for now, just let it be said. Why are you calling me good? What is good? What's a good thing? What's a good life? What's a good God? What's a good master? There is one source of goodness, and that goodness is me. That, of course, is what the Lord will show. Now, when he says, what good thing must I do? What does the young man have in mind? It shouldn't be too difficult for us to pick up our Bibles and discover what, what good is. We read it in Micah in our first reading. The Lord has shown you what is good. The, the question the man was asking in Micah is, you know, what shall, with what shall I appear before God? What shall I do? Will I, will I give a sacrifice to God? The greatest sacrifice imaginable is to give the fruit of my own body uh, to save my soul. Am I required to give my firstborn child to God? Or if God likes the fruit of the vineyard or the fruit of the olive tree, shall I give thousands of rivers of oil in order to please God? Or thousands of rams in sacrifice? No. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. For what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? That's good. To love mercy. That's good. And to walk humbly with your God. How? Well, by walking the way God wants you to in obedience with him. When two are agreed, they can most certainly walk together. So Jesus effectively says that to him. He says, 
If you want to enter into life, he says, then keep the commandments. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Now you say, well, that's a strange answer to give. That's not a full answer. Well, maybe it's not designed to be a full answer. Maybe it's meant to be an initial answer. There's one level at which it is a full answer. Providing that we take the first commandment to be, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So in that respect, it is a full answer. Maybe on the other hand, it's meant to be introductory. Because after all, if you do want to enter into eternal life, you've got to keep the commandments. Make no mistake about that. If you think you can enter into life and be disrespectful or disregarding of the Ten Commandments, you're completely and utterly wrong. But notice that this is where the Lord begins. If you want to enter into life, he says, keep the commandments. And I think the Lord is bringing the law of God here. Now, we've been looking at the law of God a bit, and he's he's bringing this sublime law of God in front of this young man just to see what this young man thinks of himself. After all, he's always thought he's been a good man, really, since his youth. Now, when the Lord says, if you want If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. I'm quite sure the young man is surprised because that's not really what he expects. He didn't expect anything that basic. You know, and that is basic. He's looking for something unusual. What kind of commandments? It can't be the ten. I mean, I've, I've kept all these things since I was young. Just like maybe you think you have too. Uh, you may, of course, admit that you haven't kept these Ten Commandments properly. Well, who wouldn't admit that? Neither have I. But deep down in your heart, you probably think, well, I've kept them well enough, you know. I've kept them well enough. I've kept them as well as the next person. And if God's going to admit the next person, he's got to admit me. But this man thinks he's kept these commandments since he was young. Must be another commandment, surely, that the Lord has in view. What? What commandment? He says, which ones do I need to keep? Lo and behold, Christ surprises him by simply quoting the Ten Commandments. Of course, he doesn't quote the Ten, but he quotes from the Ten. He quotes five of them. Five of them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're not drawn to what he says, we're drawn to what he doesn't say. First of all, there's no mention of the first four commandments. No mention of having no other gods before him. No mention of making a graven image. No mention of taking God's name in vain. No mention of the Sabbath day. No mention of these things. He leaves out his relationship to God absolutely and completely. Now that's surprising. We would expect him to home in on that right away. No, he doesn't. As well as not mentioning the first four, you'll notice that he doesn't mention the tenth, which has to do with coveting. It's got to do with your attitude to possessions, your attitude to wealth, your attitude to mammon, your attitude to material things. He leaves that out. He quotes commandments five, six, seven, eight, and nine. No ten. No mention of covetousness. Why does the Lord leave it out? Well, 
Can we just say respectfully, he's keeping it up his sleeve for now. Keeping it up his sleeve. For now the Lord simply hears him out. And the young man says, all these things I've kept from my youth up. Now it's easy to take a kind of cynical view of this and say, well, you know, I mean, how naive is he to think that he's kept these things from his childhood? And in a way that's true. Once you understand the breadth and the depth of the law of God, you see the foolishness of saying that you've kept these things from your youth. But I don't think we should view it like that. After all, one of the gospel writers tells us that at this point the Lord looked at him and loved him. Which indicates that there's a basic kind of honesty and sincerity in that. I mean, this man has actually tried to keep the law of God. And in so far as it goes, that is to be respected. Obviously far more so than somebody who's never cared about it or never bothered about it. And let's not pretend there's no difference between the two. Because of course there is. There's something attractive and sincere. And we can still say that. You can sometimes still find a young man and a young woman who try and live their lives in a right way, according to the commandments, basically, and there's something attractive and sincere in that. And I would urge you tonight, if you are in that category, when you are so close in that respect to the kingdom of God, to make sure that you enter. To make sure that you enter to make sure that you identify with this man the one thing that might still be lacking and sort that out. Especially when you're still young. It's the best time to do so. And so the Lord then decides to introduce the tenth commandment. Let me, he says, bring before you your relationship to wealth and possessions. And you notice that God doesn't, or Christ doesn't ask him the question in any kind of abstract or theoretical way. He just simply puts up a practical test just right in front of him. What he says to the man is this, he says if you want to be complete, if you want to inherit eternal life what you need to do, he says is what I tell you to do. And that's to join my disciples not just those people who follow me in the sense that they believe in me and keep my law but I want you to physically follow me as Peter does and James and John these are people who are learning the gospel in such a way as to preach it and to declare it that is my call on you because I'm entitled to call you into my kingdom and I'm entitled to call you to follow me full time and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So for that to be done, you have to live on the gifts and the tithes and the kindness of the Lord's people, and you just sell everything that you've got, just like Peter did when he left his boats and he left his fishing nets, and Andrew and James and John, when Matthew left his lucrative job as a tax collector, you sell everything that you've got and follow me around the country, learning of me. As you follow me like that, you will learn and you will grow and you will share and you will speak the good news of the kingdom. Uh, Christ's lordships, lordship makes demands on all of us. and We all have our own idols. We all do. And like we thought this morning, they need to be burned 
ground to powder, uh, destroyed. And whenever anybody's coming into the kingdom, you know, people talk about coming into the king, kingdom gently, and I've no doubt some come in more gently than others, but you know this, there's always a point at which you're being tested when it comes to coming into the kingdom. There's always a point. There's always a thing, or there's a person, or whatever it is. There's a decision to be made, a resolution. There's a call upon you to forsake and to embrace, because it's by repentance and faith that we enter into the kingdom of God. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye is getting in your way, pluck it out, because it's better to go into the kingdom of God with one eye, with one hand and with one foot, than to have all your bodily members and to be cast into hell where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. So there will be a point, something to give, something that must yield. Because that's how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. There has to be a test of lordship. And nobody can go into the kingdom except someone who is an idolater. In some shape or form. And that idol must go. If that idol is a lawful thing, it has to be relegated. Even then, to second or third place or whatever. If it is lawful, if it is not lawful, it's got to go, period. And, and we've all known that. We've all known that. How does the young man respond? We're told he went away sad. The honesty that took him thus far, and this is to his credit, is an honesty that made him turn away. At least he is being honest. But, but why did he turn away sad? Well, simply because he couldn't do it. And the Gospel writers tell us that the reason is that he had great possessions. And obviously his heart was set in them. He, he just couldn't do it. He couldn't do this thing. Could you? I'm, I'm asking all of you. Could you? I'm asking myself. Could I? It's always easy to look at these things and to judge them from armchairs. But this was a very cutting thing. And he couldn't do it. But you know, I don't know, he may, he may have been a businessman. I'm sure he transacted many deals, but this was a bad deal. And this was a poor choice. It was a poor choice to hang on to what the world had so far given him, what God had given him. Poor choice to hang on to that and to say no to the kingdom of heaven. The effect on Christ was profound. The effect on the disciples was profound too. The Lord has turned round and said how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Like I said earlier, I mean, what about a liar? What about a, a drunkard? What about a sexually immoral person? Oh, how hard it is for the rich, he says, to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples in their minds would often associate being wealthy with being blessed. And they said, well, who then can be saved? He said, this is impossible with men, but it is possible with God. Two quick things in conclusion. There's no point in me saying I've mismanaged my time because I'm always saying that. What became of him? 
We don't know. And that's where that has to end. I suppose you would hope, and I would hope, that he went home and that he seriously thought it all over again. Am I really good? What kind of good master is this Jesus Christ? Does his good transcend all other good? If I really love my possessions this much, can I in any sense really love God? Do I really know God at all? If I can't keep the tenth commandment, am I actually breaking the first, which says thou shalt have no other gods before me? Do I worship silver and gold? Coin, money. What kind of deal have I just made? Walked away from eternal life for the sake of some worldly gain that I'm going to lose anyway. And what about yourself? If you have an interest in the kingdom of God and you believe you should enter it, then it follows logically that there's something that you're holding on to that you're not willing to let go to enter it. What is it? What, what is it? And is it really that valuable? Really that valuable? Perhaps it's not even something you've got. It's actually a dream or a, an aspiration of something or someone that you might have. And it's even more tragic to lose eternal life for that. You know, we're always being told to uh, to dream and to live for our dreams and you'll get what you're, dream, you're going to dream for. And I mean, come on. We need to wise up. We need to recognize that the things that matter most in life are the things that matter most. And we need to stop dreaming about foolish, ridiculous things that we might never, ever, ever get. And we need to lay hold on the thing that we need to get, which once we get it, we will never, ever lose. Now, you walk out of this service tonight like the young man walked away from Christ. You walk away and you'll walk away either happy or sad. And in that respect, friends, before God, the ball is in your court. Let us pray. Eternal God, grant us the grace to choose well while a choice lies before us, there is always life and death stretched out before us in the proclamation of the gospel and day by day, in one way or another, we are making that choice. And uh, we pray that even tonight it might please you that even one soul would choose otherwise. We know that however insignificant such a choice would be, in the eyes of so many people in the world, nothing that would appear on the news, yet it would bring joy into all the inhabitants of the kingdom of heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Our last day singing from God's word is in Psalm 62. 
and at verse 9. I think we sang this maybe last Lord's Day, but it's, it's so appropriate for this particular occasion. Mean men are vanity, great men are a lie. And none of these things are substantial. In balance laid, they wholly are more light than vanity. Trust ye not in oppression, that's one way of getting wealth. In robbery, be not vain. On wealth, set not your hearts when increased is your gain. God hath it spoken once to me, yea, this I heard again, that power to Almighty God alone doth appertain. Yea, mercy also unto thee belongs, O Lord alone, for thou, according to his work, rewardest every one. That's Psalm 62, uh, singing from verse 9 to the end of the psalm. Let's start to sing. <clears throat>